Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are really excited to be joined by Juan Cole. Juan Cole teaches Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. His newest book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, was published in 2020. He's also the author of The New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East, and Napoleon's Egypt Invading the Middle East. Welcome to the show, Juan. Thank you, Lev. So I'm going to start with a um, really basic question. And I think a lot of these questions are going to be going to sound pretty basic. But um, a lot of our audience is, is high school kids and, um, and high school teachers. And um, I'm thinking about as we do the show, I'm thinking about, about my own teaching. So in ninth grade at our school, we teach uh, a history of the Middle East in, in ninth grade for, for most of the year. There is at the end of the year a, um, a Middle East peace conference where the kids, it's sort of like model UN, the kids represent different countries. And when we start the study of the Middle East, um, we study Israel, Palestine. And the kids always say, what is Israel and what is Palestine? So I'm wondering if maybe we could start there. I know that Israel is a, a Jewish country in the Middle East and that Palestine, there are two territories, there's the West Bank and Gaza. And I know that they're run by different political parties. So maybe you could just begin there. What is Israel and what is Palestine and what is the difference between Gaza and the West Bank? Sure. Well, as you say, uh, at the moment in uh, the Mideast, uh, there is a country of Israel, which was formed uh, in 1948. And it was formed in, the, in part of the old British mandate of Palestine. Uh, this was a, a territory that the British ruled as a kind of colony uh, after World War I. Uh, but the League of Nations back in the uh, 20s was you know, a new organization and it was uncomfortable with the idea of colonies. So the idea was that a mandate from the League of Nations meant that the territory was being put under British imperial auspices, but the British had a responsibility to the people there uh, to um, kind of grow them up to the point where they could stand on their own two feet and be a, a nation. And there was a kind of paternalistic language there. And the British had made a pledge during World War I uh, that uh, Jews could have a homeland or, or a national home of some sort in Palestine. And at the time they made that pledge, I don't think that anybody imagined that it would result in a country, but it did uh, for many reasons. Eventually some half a million, uh, largely European Jews moved to British mandate Palestine. Uh, many of them were fleeing Hitler. Uh, and so in 1948, um, as the British decolonized after World War II and left their former colonies, a fight broke out between uh, the Israelis, uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, immigrants into British Mandate Palestine, who became the Israelis, and the local people, the Palestinians, uh, who uh, had been, their families had been living there uh, for a very long time. Uh, and in that fight, over half of the Palestinians had to leave what became Israel. Uh, there were, some of them fled insecurity and so forth. 
and some of them were targeted and, and chased out. Um, and, and in any case, uh, so then you had an Israel, but you didn't have a Palestine anymore because the British had left. There was no mandate of Palestine. And there were territories that the Israelis did not end up with in uh, the West Bank of the Jordan River uh, and the Gaza Strip. And uh, in the aftermath of the 48 war, uh, the, the Egyptians became custodians of the Gaza Strip and the, uh, the Jordanian government became a custodian of the West Bank. But then in 1967, there was another war. And, and in the course of that war, the Israelis conquered the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which had large Palestinian populations. The, the Gaza Strip is uh, very densely populated. The Israelis thought about trying to put people in there from Israel, uh, but ultimately felt that they couldn't protect them and so withdrew in 2007. Uh, but they still have it surrounded. Uh, in the West Bank, the Israelis have put in several hundred thousand of their own citizens uh, kind of colonizing uh, Palestinian West Bank. Well, for a brief moment in the early 1990s, uh, it looked as though the Israelis might be willing to withdraw from Gaza and the West Bank and let an a Palestinian state be formed. Uh, and so as a part of the Oslo Peace Accords, um, President Clinton helped to negotiate uh, between Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin of Israel and uh, Yasser Arafat of the Palestine Liberation Organization, a an agreement that established what, what was called a Palestine Authority. And initially it, it just had, you know, some police and health services and, and basic uh, services in some small parts of the West Bank. But the plan was that the Israelis would withdraw their troops from all of the West Bank and the a Palestine Authority would take over there and in Gaza. Uh, but right-wingers in Israel didn't want this. Hamas, the Islamic or the, or the Muslim fundamentalist party didn't want it. And as a result of the hardliners on both sides, it fell apart. And so Oslo was never implemented. There is a Palestine Authority. It only has authority over 40% of the West Bank. The other 60% of the West Bank is in Israeli uh, military hands. Uh, even the 40% the PLO has overseen in, in many ways by Israel. Uh, and Gaza um, uh, came to be ruled by uh, the party militia Hamas rather than the Palestine Liberation Organization. And so you really have three governmental entities there, the Israeli government, uh, the Palestine Authority and the Hamas in Gaza, but of the three, only Israel really has sovereignty between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. That's really helpful. Could you talk a little bit about the difference in, 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 in what life is like in Gaza versus the West Bank and then how, how, how life compares to, to Israel? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, um, let me reverse it and say that Israel is an advanced country. Uh, it has a, a big scientific establishment, technology, 
it, it trades heavily with, uh, with Europe, with, the, uh, with China, with the United States, uh, and uh, its um, nominal per capita income is in the sort of the, the low uh, 40,000 uh, per, uh, per annum. Uh, so it's, it's a, an advanced country uh, with a good standard of living uh, and all the amenities. In 2006, the Bush administration uh, oversaw uh, an election in the Palestine Authority and um, convinced uh, then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon to let all the Palestinian factions run uh, on the theory that anyway, the PLO would win. And, uh, and so they let Hamas contest the elections. And uh, su surprise to everybody, Hamas won. In the aftermath, uh, the, the Israeli government decided that this was unacceptable to it, because it had a, a kind of peace deal with the Palestine Authority that had been negotiated in the early 90s at Oslo. But they didn't have any deal with Hamas, which uh, they reject Hamas, Hamas rejects them. Uh, and so this was unacceptable. And so the United States and Israel behind the scenes uh, connived with the PLO to make a coup against the elected government of, of Hamas, which succeeded in the West Bank. And so the PLO took over the West Bank, even though it hadn't won the elections there, uh, but failed in Gaza, where Hamas managed to remain in power. Israel was so upset about Gaza remaining in power in about Hamas remaining in power in Gaza, even though Hamas had been elected and Israel had allowed it to be elected, uh, that they imposed a blockade on Gaza. So Israel controls most of the land border with Gaza and the sea uh, through its navy. And it, it, in the early 21st century, it bombed the only airport in Gaza. So Gaza is, is not a country. Uh, it's an occupied territory. It's recognized by the UN as, as Israeli occupied. The Israelis don't have forces inside the territory, but they have it surrounded. And they uh, carefully screen what materiel they allow into it. Uh, they even developed a plan uh, which um, wasn't, wasn't implemented to keep very much food from going into Gaza, just enough to keep people alive, but not, but uh, no chocolate, no, nothing that they would enjoy. So because of Hamas being in, in power in, in Gaza, the Israelis have blockaded it. Uh, many consider this blockade to be illegal in international law, uh, since Israel is recognized as the occupying authority. Uh, you're not allowed to treat occupied populations in this way. And, and it's generally frowned on in international law to blockade uh, and deny uh, material and, and um, goods to civilians as part of a, a war effort. It's collective punishment, but that's what the Israeli policy is, is collective punishment. Everybody in Gaza has to suffer uh, as long as Hamas is in power there. And so Gaza has the highest unemployment rate in the world it's not allowed to trade very much uh, with its traditional trading partners. The Israel does let it export uh, some agricultural goods, and it doesn't doesn't stop 
key staples from coming in. Uh, but because it's blockaded in this way, uh, and it's very hard to get in and out, uh, you have to go with Israeli permission. 50% of the working population is unemployed. If it weren't for international aid uh, that comes into Gaza from, from the United States, from uh, from Qatar and, and some other uh, countries, then people there would just probably starve to death uh, under these conditions. They have tried to subvert the Israeli blockade in various ways. They've made tunnels and they managed to smuggle in some uh, building materials and that the Israelis uh, ration and uh, they do try to make you know buildings and restaurants and and to make a life, but it's it's a hard life. It's very restricted. The West Bank is not blockaded in the same way. So the Palestinians over there in the West Bank have a, a better economy uh, than uh, than Gaza. Nothing like, of course, Israel itself, uh, and. The Israeli occupation is estimated by the World Bank to have cost the Palestinians in the West Bank billions and billions and billions of dollars over the past 20 years. Uh, and, um, you know, if you had money to invest, uh, would you invest it in an occupied territory like the West Bank? Obviously, that's a, a, that's a downer for investors. And um, so there is also a relatively uh, high unemployment in the West Bank. It's not on the scale of Gaza. Uh, and life is hard in many ways. And the, the big problem for a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank is that they are stateless. They don't have a country that they belong to. They are ultimately ruled by the Israeli military. And Israel has been uh, flooding in its own citizens into the Palestinian West Bank. And uh, now they have reached you know, several hundred thousand. And um, Israel takes away land from the Palestinians to build Israeli uh, apartment buildings on, uh, which Palestinians are not allowed to live in. Uh, it makes roads specially for the settlers. So there really now is, there are two economies in the, the West Bank. There's a, an Israeli uh, squatter economy of people who have come in from Israel proper and have taken away Palestinian property, they overuse the water compared to the Palestinians, etc. Uh, and then you have the Palestinians themselves. And the settlers sometimes will attack Palestinian uh, businesses. They, they, they chop down a lot of their olive trees or burn them. Uh, they, they would like to chase them out if they could, uh, at least make their lives miserable. I was in college when the second intifada happened and Israel started to build a wall around the West Bank. And prior to that, um, it was my understanding that a lot of citizens of the West Bank would come and work in Israel, usually pretty low paid jobs, and then go back to the West Bank. But that a lot of those opportunities dried up after the establishment of the wall. One, is, is my sense correct? And two, if it is, what kind of work do people in the West Bank do today? Sure. Well, um, uh, you are correct that uh, the economic integration of the West Bank with Israel proper uh, declined after the wall was built. Uh, however, there still are 100, 120,000 or so Palestinians who are allowed to commute into Israel uh, for, for work. 
Uh, and as you say, they mainly do mean your work uh, uh, over there. Uh, inside the West Bank itself, well, farmers farm uh, and farming is not a, family farming is, is not a very lucrative occupation, uh, but they grow, uh, they grow olives, uh, for instance, and other goods. They have workshops, they make things. Uh, they have textile factories that they try to make clothes for the Palestinian market and, and so forth. And there are exports from the West Bank, um, both the Israeli settlers and the Palestinians uh, export from there. They have some economic activity. It's not like Gaza where things are so closed off. What are occupied territories? Why is 1967 such an important year? I mean, I hear people say, let's go back to pre-1967 borders. And you've talked about international law. Are occupied ter Are you allowed to occupy territories under international law? Under international law, if there's a war going on, uh, then you are allowed to occupy the enemy's territory if, if you can make advances on it. But there are rules about this. Uh, according to uh, the Hague Convention of 1907 and then the uh, Geneva uh, um, Convention of 1949 on the treatment of populations in occupied territories, the occupying power has to be nice to the occupied people. It has to treat them well. It has to preserve their ways of life, their economy. Uh, and uh, occupation is viewed as a temporary situation during a war. So the laws of occupation really don't envisage it going on for more than a year or so. So Israel functions under the law of occupation with regard to the West Bank and Gaza from the point of view of the United Nations and most uh, nations in the world. They view Israel as the occupying power in Gaza and the West Bank, which Israel conquered in the 1967 war. Uh, but I would argue that I mean, this is no longer an occupation of the sort that international law envisages. Very extensive changes have been made to the ways of life of the people. And it's gone on now since 1967 uh, with no end in sight. So, and there's no war uh, going on between Israel and its neighbors. Jordan and Egypt have a peace treaty with, with Israel. Uh, this is not really a military occupation any longer of the sort that the law envisages. Uh, and then the question becomes, you know, what is it? Uh, we, we typically use the, the language of occupation because that's the only situation that's very much analogous to what's going on. But some organizations, Human Rights Watch uh, and uh, the Israeli Human Rights Organization, B'Tselem, just this year have given up talking so much about occupation and they now refer to what's going on uh, as apartheid, an analogy from the white nationalist government of South Africa from the late 1940s to the early 1990s, uh, which ruled over uh, non-white populations, uh, the, uh, uh, 
uh, the Zulu and the Bantu and, and the South Asians and uh, the Malay and treated them as inferior uh, to the whites, denied the franchise to the, to the, to the black Africans. Uh, and so had these layered forms of belongingness and, and authority of, for each of the populations in South Africa. And these human rights organizations uh, have come to the conclusion that we're, we're now past a mere military occupation and we're into a situation of apartheid. That's uh, an, an apt comparison? Well, people argue over it. Uh, obviously, no two historical situations are exactly alike. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is that nowadays, when Human Rights Watch talks about apartheid uh, in uh, Israel-Palestine, it's not making an argument that the situation is exactly the same as in South Africa. Uh, it's make, it, it, the, the, the South African apartheid experiment uh, became a term of art in international law. So it's defined now by the Rome Statute, and there is an international uh, uh, treaty against apartheid, which defines it. It's, a, it's now defined as the systematic treatment of one ethnic group by another, uh, so as to keep the, uh, the victim inferior. So if, if one ethnic group is systematically disadvantaged by uh, a government, uh, then, then that's apartheid. And under, under that definition, that broad and, and general definition, rather than an exact analogy to South Africa, uh, it's certainly the case uh, that in Israel-Palestine, uh, the Israeli sovereignty extends from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. And in, in places under that sovereignty, Jews are privileged, Palestinians are disprivileged. Talk a bit about the term Zionism and the term anti-Zionism. I, I think I understand that Zionism is the idea that's maybe first put forward in the late 19th century by Theodore Herzl, which says that Jews ought to be able to have their own state. Is that still the way that we understand the term today? And then what does it mean to be an anti-Zionist? Sure, well, as you say, um, nationalism is a, a new phenomenon in, in world history from a historian's point of view. I know it may be surprising because now everything is organized around nation states, but that wasn't true in the 1700s. Um, the world was organized by empires. In fact, the United States itself rebelled against the British empire to which it had belonged and established itself as an independent country. And it really was in that period of the late 18th century that nation states started to be theorized and started, and, and started to supplant empires, but very slowly because empire remained the main way that people organize themselves still into the 20th century. Uh, and in an empire, you know, uh, there's typically a monarch, uh, an emperor or a king or queen, 
And what it really means to be in an empire is that you're loyal to the, to the monarch. Uh, it doesn't matter what language you speak or what ethnic group belongs, you belong to, maybe even what religion you practice. Uh, so the British Empire had, you know, hundreds of millions of Hindu subjects who were expected to be loyal to Queen Victoria. And um, so in the 19th century, uh, people began theorizing a different way of organizing society, which was the nation. And they, especially in Central Europe, theorists of the nation wanted to base it on ethnicity. So Germans didn't have a nation state. Uh, there were lots of small baronies and principalities in what is now Germany. But there were people who wanted to create a Germany. Uh, and ultimately, they succeeded uh, in doing so uh, uh, under, under Bismarck, uh, you know, by, by the 1870s. Uh, but it was a long process. And the theorists of nationhood thought that there were peoples they uh, they had started to think about those peoples biologically as races, uh, and they thought there were pure races, there are mixed races, uh, and the Germans thought of themselves as a pure race. Uh, it, it had to do with language, it had to do with ancestry. Uh, it, it sometimes had something to do with, uh, with religion, where a religion was very highly associated with an ethnicity. Uh, and so Swedish nationalism was always very Lutheran. Uh, but in Germany, for instance, there were both Catholics and, and Lutherans. Uh, and, um, uh, and so religion uh, maybe was downplayed a little bit in favor of other forms of ethnicity. Uh, and so people began you know, fighting wars and, and uh, struggling uh, to establish nation states on an ethnic basis. And some Jews began uh, theorizing in mid-19th century Europe that the Jewish people could be seen not just as a private religion, but as a people like the Germans or like the French, uh, and a people through whom a nation state could be erected. So the, a form of Jewish nationalism emerged, and it was typically called Zionism. Uh, and for me, I, I, I really uh, don't think it, there's too much value in speaking about Zionism uh, because I don't see it as distinctive in any particular way from other nationalisms. Uh, it's just Jewish nationalism. And initially in the late 19th and early 20th century, most Jews were, were horrified at, at this idea uh, that, that they would become uh, a vehicle for, for a nation state, for nationalism. Many of them were very happy in the United States or France or Germany uh, and, and didn't want to be accused of being disloyal, of, of having an alternative uh, nation state ideal. And then there was the problem of where to put a Jewish nation state uh, because they were scattered around uh, in Europe, and the Middle East, and Russia. Uh, and uh, there wasn't an obvious territory because the nation state theory associated a people with a territory. Uh, historians think this is silly because 
we know people moved around, languages moved around. Uh, the the, the, uh, the Romans were dismayed when the, the Germans crossed the Rhine, so they weren't always there. Uh, but um, uh, they did associate it with, with, with soil, with territory. So a, a lot of nationalism is kind of has a, a romantic vision of a people and its past. Uh, and so Greek nationalism is all about, you know, ancient Athens and uh, uh, Plato and, and uh, Alexander and, and so forth. So uh, it was natural for the romantic nationalists uh, of a Jewish nation state to imagine having it in uh, the territory that had been occupied by ancient Israel, which was no longer there. And, and there were almost no Jews there. Uh, it was an Ottoman set of provinces uh, in which um, local people called it Palestine or Palestine and, and, and which Arab, Arabic speaking villagers lived uh, who were uh, well, 80% Muslim, maybe 20% Christian. But, but these 19th century Jewish nationalists uh, uh, got backing from uh, the Rothschilds and, and started going off to form agricultural colonies in Ottoman Palestine. And they got permission from the Ottoman Sultan to come in on the grounds that they would be improving landlords and they'd be good for the economy. And of course, they were tiny in number and so not threatening. Uh, and, um, uh, and so ultimately, by a series of very strange happenstances, the British conquered Palestine away from the Ottomans and the Ottoman Empire collapsed uh, after World War I. Uh, and then the British, you know, proved sympathetic to the, to the Jewish nationalist program and allowed Jews to begin immigrating in large numbers to, uh, to mandate Palestine. And then the rise of uh, fascism in Europe and its virulent and monstrous anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews, which uh, ultimately led to the murder of, of, of some six million of them, also produced, you know, among those who saw the writing on the wall and tried to get out, uh, enormous numbers of refugees in British Mandate Palestine. It's one of the few places that they could get to. Uh, and so they had then by 1945, uh, the bulk of population, uh, the sympathy of the, uh, of the imperial power, uh, they were able uh, to come out of the 1947-48 uh, civil war uh, and war with the surrounding uh, uh, Arab neighbors uh, with the state. Uh, and. Uh, so Zionism or Jewish nationalism is, is central to the creation of Israel. It's central to Israel's continued identity. And, and, and because I think largely because of the Holocaust and the rise of Israel, um, most Jews around the world uh, accepted the premises of Jewish nationalism, that Jews are a people and a, a people is owed a state in, in that way of thinking. Yeah, I guess, you know, I was watching some of the protests in the last couple of weeks and I see some signs saying, you know, Zionism equals racism and people describing themselves as anti-Zionist. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think that's true that Zionism equals racism? What do they mean by that? 
I think that um, it's incorrect to say Zionism equals racism. Uh, there are many Jewish nationalists who are not racists. And I don't think it's implicit in nationalism that it has to be racist. Uh, there's what's called civic nationalism, which gives equal rights to all citizens. And a lot of the rhetoric of, of Israel and Israelis um, is that of civic nationalism. And so 20% of Israel of Israel's population is not Jewish, uh, but uh, the, the government uh, is supposed to uh, treat them uh, the same as the, the, the Jewish Israelis. It doesn't always, and there, um, uh, there are ways in which the um, Palestinian Israelis or the Israelis of Palestinian heritage uh, are not entirely equal to, to the Jews inside Israel, but there is this rhetoric at least of, of, of civic nationalism. So I, I don't, you know, all nationalism uh, contains within itself the danger of racism. Uh, because if you erect the nation state on the basis of an ethnicity, well, what do you do with a multicultural society? what kind of nationalism can Belgium have since it has both Dutch and, and, and French speaking people in it. Uh, so you, you know, in a multicultural society, you can have a nation state, but it, it can't, it can't be based on race or if it is, it causes a lot of trouble. And of course the United States is supposed to be a civic nation state uh, where citizens all have equal rights, but, uh, that ideal has been subverted by racism in, in many times and places. And so in the Jim Crow Deep South, uh, you had um, systematic discrimination against African-Americans and denial to them of the franchise. Uh, and, um, and so a latent white nationalism uh, was the de facto basis for uh, American nas nationalism in the South, uh, even though the constitution of the country uh, implies a civic nationalism. So I, I think people who say that Zionism is racism uh, are, are incorrect, uh, but uh, Zionism, like any other form of nationalism, can be practiced in a racist way, including in the United States. I get really confused over the idea of what one state a one state solution might look like and what people mean by two states like i guess do they mean like the un proposal uh in 1947 do they mean pre-67 borders do they mean something like the territories that we have today so i'm wondering if if let's say joe biden called you up and said hey juan i want you to come in and Give me some advice here. We need to figure out a solution for the crisis in the Middle East. What does your solution look like? Is it one state? Is it two state? And, and what do those borders look like? Yes, well, your, your, your premise um, isn't as fantastic as it might sound because uh, Joe Biden did once call me to testify be before the Senate Foreign <laughs> Relations Committee uh, 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 on Iraq, not on, uh, not on Israel, Palestine. Um, so I, I met him briefly. Uh, but um, uh, the, 
the, the framework for a two-state solution was laid out in the Oslo peace process, uh, which uh, you know, was signed into treaty law by uh, Israel and uh, the Palestine Authority and, and the United States um, in the early 1990s. And that envisaged that the Israelis would withdraw their troops and population from the Palestinian West Bank and from Gaza. Uh, but uh, the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel was bound and determined that that would never happen. And he sabotaged, he and others of his orientation, sabotaged the Oslo peace process. Uh, and then the number of Israeli squatters on Palestinian land uh, grew exponentially after this peace treaty was signed. And so now if you look at a map of, of uh, sort of the political geography of the West Bank, where people live, what they do, who they are, uh, it looks like Swiss cheese. Uh, we have these Israeli settlements dotting the landscape and uh, the Palestinians are divided by the roads, by Israeli checkpoints into what are essentially cantons uh, that aren't even easy to travel between. You have to go through the Israelis to get to another one. If you're in a village and the hospital is, is on the other side of the Israeli checkpoint, uh, you might well end up having your baby in, in the car if, if you're pregnant. Um, and this has happened quite a lot. Uh, so that, that situation that existed in, in, in 93, uh, which you know, was the basis for imagining a two-state solution, no longer exists. Uh, and it now, you know, a lot of people are asking, where would you put a Palestinian state? What would it look like? Uh, because you have hundreds of thousands of Israelis living in the West Bank, uh, and uh, they're not going to go quietly. And it, probably no Israeli government would try to make them. I think that the two-state solution is long since implausible. I just don't think it can be implemented. Um, practically speaking, it, it, it was the, it, it is the policy of the United States that they're working towards what they call a two-state solution, but it's just not. I mean, I think that's just uh, a, a way of speaking that allows you to kick the can down the road and not actually change the status quo any. Uh, and uh, I just don't, I, I don't see how it's any longer practical to pursue that course. So then you really only have three possibilities that are left. One is to go on like it is now, which many human rights organizations have now decided is, is a form of apartheid. Well, apartheid lasted decades in South Africa, so maybe it will last decades in the Middle East. Or uh, something horrible could happen. Uh, we, we saw maybe glimpses of that horror uh, in April and May, uh, and a, a full-scale civil war could break out. Uh, and, and you could have mm, ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. 
um, they could end up in Jordan and Egypt. It's not very likely, partly because the Jordanians and the Egyptians would shoot anybody who tried to come across and, uh, and they don't want it, uh, but it, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And a lot of Israelis, and I, I was told by an Israeli consul, uh, a, a consul myself once that if you know they would be very happy if they if Jordan would just take over the West Bank again and Egypt would take over Gaza. Uh, but the Arab world has decided that they stand for Palestinian self-determination and neither Jordan nor Egypt would, would agree to do that. Uh, there are other reasons now for which that's no longer possible. Uh, and, and I not, don't know how sincere the Israeli wish for that is anyway, because then they have invested a lot of money and people in, in colonizing the West Bank. So then a, a third possibility uh, would be uh, for Israel and Palestine to become one country for essentially for Israeli citizenship to be given to the stateless Palestinians, the 5 million people who live in the West Bank and Gaza, just as Israeli citizenship has been given to the 1 million, uh, the over 1 million uh, Palestinians who live inside Israel. Uh, and um, that's the one state solution where Israel becomes even more so than it is now, uh, a multicultural state, kind of half Jewish, half Palestinian. Thank you.